a sequential, sequential study of the Gospel of Matthew, we pick up this morning in the 17th chapter, verse 9. 9 through 13 are the verses under uh, ex- study exposition this Lord's Day morning, if you'll turn there in your copy of the Scripture, or however you obtain the Word of God. Matthew 17, beginning at verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Uh, The subject for these verses this morning, I have uh, chosen this, Elijah and the Second Coming of Christ. Uh, I imagine as you look around the world, you see trouble everywhere. It seems like there's not one thing as another. One of the problems living in this era, because of instantaneous communication provided for us by our advanced technology, we can know what happens on the other side of the world in a split second, as well as what happens in our neighborhoods. Now, all, all that just tells us that the world is a world of trouble. But one of the things that comforts my heart and will comfort the heart of any Christian is this, that the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his earthly kingdom will come to pass. Human history is headed in a predetermined direction. Jesus Christ will come from heaven back to earth. He will set up his rule. He will be in charge. It's divinely scheduled. It's on the divine calendar. We don't know what that is. We don't know that day, but we do know it's coming. We know it's coming because God said it is. And Christ's return is because of his power to accomplish what he has declared. The transfiguration that we looked at last Sunday was a preview or a glimpse of the coming of Jesus in his glory to set up his rule over this planet. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm looking forward to a theological dictator named Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to one who will rule in perfect justice and righteousness, where there will be peace from sea to sea. He's coming. He gave us a glimpse of it in the transfiguration. That is, he pulled back, as it were, his humanity so we could see his essential being, his, the transformation before the eyes of the disciples. We saw in 16.28 that he was going to come. And in 17.2 of Act, uh, uh, Matthew, he kept his word. 
but there is a sequence in God's redemptive plan and purpose. There's a sequence. The second coming and the kingdom will not be established before the crucial work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Now we know that because we live on the other side of the cross and we're waiting for the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. His death and resurrection is the core message of the gospel. Hence Jesus' words to his disciples in verse 9. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. That's a prohibition. And that's what we will entitle verse 9. That's our heading. Our Lord commanded them to be silent about the miracle of the transfiguration which they had witnessed. They would have been compelled to share such an experience. So would you. We would want to tell people what we saw. We got a preview of Jesus and his glory and power, his coming. Jesus said, don't tell anyone of the vision. Don't proclaim the truth at this time. Don't tell them now about my coming and great glory and power to set up my kingdom. Keep the reality of my messianic rule to yourself until the prescribed time. Say, why is that, Lord? First, you need to understand the transfiguration was for the three disciples' benefit. It was to confirm further that Jesus was indeed the divine Messiah. He indeed is the son of the living God. It just drove a nail in their minds. It it took it down deep into their soul that this one we've been following is none other than Messiah. He's none other than the Son of the living God. His identity, therefore, was solidified in their thinking. They, They knew, yes, this is the Messiah. The Father said, this is my beloved Son. You say, why is that helpful? I'm going to tell you why. That knowledge would hold them fast when they were tested. During the coming events that Jesus told them about in Matthew 16, 21, when he says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The suffering and the murder of Jesus during all of that tumultuous time period, all of that drama, uh, they would have to be held fast. The reality that he is who he said he is, that truth would do that for them, would secure them. Second, the imposition of silence regarding transfiguration would restrain further materialistic Military and political expectations of Messiah as held by many Jews. You need to understand that the Jews, they, they wanted Jesus to be king, but not for spiritual reasons, but for political ones. And even f- sought to force the issue 
It's recorded in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And people are like that today. That they like Jesus for their purposes. They say, Jesus, this is what we want you to do for us. But you do know that Jesus didn't come here on our terms. Yeah, he's king. He's ruler, but he's not going to rule for our sakes, for what we want, but for his glory and his honor and to fulfill the divine plan. The injunction against reporting transfiguration was only until after the resurrection of the Son of Man. You see it there, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. A dying Messiah was not part of the Jews' idea of Messiah. Even after Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, that was still in their thinking. They, they had no framework in their minds, though they had scripture that told the Messiah would die and suffer. Isaiah 53 comes to mind. They, they just didn't have that thinking in their minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 says this, But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and Gentiles foolishness. A dying Messiah did not fit in with the disciples' conception of Messiah either. Remember Peter? Peter wanted Jesus to skip the cross and immediately establish his kingdom. Remember that? That's why he was saying what he did in Matthew 17, 4. Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Lord, let's just camp out here. You don't, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. This is good. you got this power. Establish your kingdom. Let's take about a week, you know, seven days, and uh, these guys are here, and let's stay here. Jesus is talking about his death. He said, don't tell anyone here in verse 9 about the vision seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Mark's parallel account supplies additional information about this. It says in Mark chapter 9 verse 10, the disciples were wondering what rising from the dead meant. Uh, now you do understand they weren't trying to figure out what in the world is a resurrection. They, they got that because, after all, these Jews, they knew the Old Testament, these disciples, and the Old Testament taught resurrection. Job chapter 19, verses 26 through 27, for example. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. They, they knew the meaning of resurrection. Moreover, they had witnessed Jesus raise people from the dead. Matthew eleven five, and they 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 witnessed, especially the inner circle disciples. They they had seen Christ's power over death, so they had no problem understanding what it, resurrection meant. Their problem was not with resurrection in general, but with Jesus's resurrection in particular. And this is what it was: How does 
Jesus' death and resurrection fit in with their view of Messiah's mission. That was it. The fact of the matter is they were not ready to accept his suffering and death. The display the disciples saw is what they wanted Jesus to do right away. They wanted the kingdom and the glory to be brought presently without the suffering and death. But of course, the death and resurrection of Christ was indispensable to his mission on earth. It had to happen. It's preordained by God. If it hadn't happened, you know what would have happened. You wouldn't be sitting here today. You wouldn't offer him worship and praise. You would be on your way to eternal nightmare in hell. Jesus' mission was to save sinners. As he would later tell his disciples in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. That's Messiah's mission. It's a saving mission. His first coming was not to change the geopolitical circumstance of Israel, but to provide salvation for sinners in Israel and also for Gentiles who believe on him. That's why he came the first time. And that's what he's doing in the interim. Since he died and rose and gone back to heaven until he comes again, he is still calling out a people for his name. He is calling out a people for his name all over the world. And might I be so bold to say he is not particularly concerned about the geopolitical circumstance of this country. Oh, y'all ain't paying any attention. <laughs> Jesus is saving people. He was doing it before we got here. And if he tarries, he'll be doing it after we're long gone. You, uh, let, me, let me tell you, fix your hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. I, I remember some time ago when I read that, and it just really struck me. That Peter writing to suffering Christians under the Roman Empire, he said, fix your hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, his coming. And that's what we're to do as believers. Don't fix your hope on things temporal. Fix your hope on that which is eternal. It is in God's hands and what Christ is going to do when he comes. You know, um, there was a, I think I've told the story before, young lady, she's young, she wanted to get married, Christian, and uh, she understood about the rapture. She wanted to go, but she wanted to get married first. <laughs> uh, the way I look at it, there is nothing left if Jesus wants to come right now, I'm ready. Let's go. 
There's nothing here worth waiting for. Let's go. Fix your hope where? On the revelation of Jesus. It's where it's to be fixed. Not in this world. Christ has come to save. And that's what he's doing. He's saving people. First Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The perishing are those who are headed toward ruin even now because they're lost in their sins and they refuse Christ and they're headed to the ultimate expression of ruin and that is the place called hell. The perishing. Those of us who are being saved, we're, we're saved. That point when God justified us and we're being saved, he is making us increasingly like his beloved son. And one day we'll experience salvation in his fullest expression, glorification in his presence. No sin whatsoever. That's what we're about. Because that's what matters. This is eternal stuff. And Jesus had to die to secure that for us. And he was raised to demonstrate that he had secured that for us. That's God's plan. Guys, don't tell anybody until after the resurrection. Then there's the prophecy. It's our next heading. Verses 10 and 11. His disciples ask him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? See, the disciples were hoping or assumed that his glory and his kingdom would immediately follow his death and resurrection then. With that hope in mind and the presence of Elijah which they saw on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, they were led to inquire of Jesus what I just read. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What they're saying is that he must come before Messiah's arrival and establish his kingdom. Why do, why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come before Messiah arrives. Elijah will come. Prior to the establishment of his kingdom, that kingdom was, that was just previewed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Scribes said that. The last book in the English order of the Bible, Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. I swear they got that. The scribes didn't just pull that out of the air. They didn't get everything right. <laughs> they got this. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you, Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Verse 6, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. 
Elijah's coming. The text says. When this prophecy was written, Elijah had been in the presence of the Lord for centuries. Elijah, it says, will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. You're probably asking, what in the world is that? The great and terrible day of the Lord. I'm glad you asked. That's what I like about you all. You're always asking good questions. I can see it on your head. Well, tell me now. You got to tell me about it. What are, what are you talking about, brother? The expression, the day of the Lord, is used 19 times in the Old Testament. And it is used in the New Testament as well. We'll look at an example of it in a moment. The formulation or expression refers to divine judgment, both historical and eschatological. Judgment that happens in history and judgment that will come in the future. The, the historical, near historical judgment. In the Old Testament, the prophet said that the, the, the day of the Lord's coming when God would directly intervene in judgment against his people and against his enemies. The eschatological day of the Lord is divine judgment too. But it refers to a future divine intervention of judgment to come. One of those times in the future is uh, laid out for us by Peter. Second Peter. Chapter 3. He tells us. So I say, you need, you need to have a heavenly hope, people. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Are you there? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You see those words? But the day of the Lord will come like a... You know what a thief is. He doesn't text you. Send you an email. I'm coming to rob you. It's 635. Be ready. They, the element of surprise, unexpectedness. The day of the Lord, this future eschatological judgment that's coming will be like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This present earth will be gone. Revelation 21.1 tells us God is passing away. Now, back up in verse 7 of 2 Peter 3, it says this, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. <laughs> Did you get that? This world is continuing to exist. One of the reasons is God is reserving it. God is keeping it because one day he's going to destroy it along with ungodly men. It's going to all be gone. Oh, I need to. Since I'm here, may I add some things? Y'all don't mind, do you? Verse 11. 
since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Sometimes people think uh, eschatology is irrelevant. No, it is not. God tells us, because this stuff is going to burn up, it's going to be destroyed by my power, my judgment, this is what you do in the interim. You be godly. You be holy in your conduct. Further, verse 12, looking for and hastening. Let me explain. Y'all know that? Day of God. Day of God is the eternal state. The eternal state. When's the last time you woke up? Lord, I'm looking for the day of God. No, you ain't thought that. <laughs> because our problem is we're too earthbound. We think about now and stuff here, and the Bible says we are to be looking with eagerness to the day of God, eternal, the eternal state. When all this is done, I'm going to be honest with you, I do think about that. I look for it. I also say, Lord, come on. Come, Lord Jesus. I don't see any point. You know, that's just me. I don't see any point why you're not coming. Of course, I know. I'm just emotional saying that. I know he has his plan. He's working it out. But the desire is, Lord, come. I'm ready for eternity to start. There's nothing here that is comparable to what he's got in store for us. Nothing. The highest thrill, the highest joy is nothing compared to being in the eternal state with the eternal God, worshiping him, seeing his glory forever and ever, no death, nothing but absolute joy and love. Boy, there's nothing here like that. Scripture tells us how we're to think. This is how we're to behave. It's Christian living. And it is not about acquiring your blessings around the corner stuff. <laughs> the stupidity of the prosperity gospel. Those false teachers of the prosperity gospel are those that are dead, they're in hell, and they are utterly broke. Can't drive a Rolls Royce in hell. Now, why does the text tell us this? Verse 12. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 13. In which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking for. Now, I really kind of got off there. Y'all don't mind, do you? You see, the day of God, the eternal state, comes after the millennial reign of Christ. If you, if, help me with it. Elijah is coming. I took it to Second Peter. Let me tell you about um, the other, another expression of the day of the Lord. 
That is when Jesus Christ comes. It's related to Elijah too. Revelation chapter 19. Verses 11. Are y'all turning there? Boy, another reason why I like y'all. <laughs> you make the preacher look at the text. Good. Revelation 19, verse 11. The second coming of Jesus. He's coming in judgment. The first time he came as a babe in humiliation. He's not coming like that this time. He's coming in power. Verse 11. And I saw heaven open, John writes. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. When he comes, he's not coming to sit down and let's have peace talks. He's coming to judge. It's the day of the Lord. A direct intervention by the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, coming in as a conquering warrior. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. There is an aspect of him, his character, that only he knows. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And I believe that, it, that that's a reference to us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our Jesus. He's coming, and he is going to set up his kingdom. And there's nobody can stop him. For when he speaks, it says in verse 15, for his mouth comes, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Of course, you know it's not a literal sword. He just speaks. And when he speaks, stuff happens. Do you remember Genesis 1? In the beginning, God said. And so the, this judgment, the day of the Lord, when he comes and he judges. Now, here's the question. Jesus, here in our text, answers and said this after they asked the question in verse 10. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Mm -hmm. 
e either Elijah or an Elijah-like person, I'll explain that in a moment, will come before the second coming of Christ, which involves or includes the day of the Lord. Let's explain the prohibition, the prophecy, the preview. Verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And what he means is, he is talking about John the Baptist. And we don't have to guess at, it, um, at that because verse 13 tells us. And they did to him whatever... Uh, they wanted. Jesus is equating him with John the Baptist. Let me tell you, John the Baptist came in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was a, a reforming influence in Israel. They came and asked John at one point in his ministry, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. John chapter 1, verse 21. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus lets it be known that if they had believed that is Israel, then the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy that I read you there in Malachi chapter 4 and 5 would have been fulfilled. They didn't believe. John the Baptist was a foreshadowing or a preview of another Elijah-like person or Elijah himself. You say, wow. Can you show me that? I can. Revelation 11. Revelation 11. We go to this passage in Revelation, do understand we're right smack dab in the middle of the great tribulation, the final three and one half years. The final three and one half years of a seven year period, the end of the seven year period, Jesus Christ will come, which we just read there in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 11, 3, notice it says this, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. 1260 days, 42 months, that is three and one half years. Two witnesses. They're calling the nation to repentance in the midst of the tribulation period. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, we understand that this is symbolic language, olive trees and lampstands. When you see something that similar doesn't make sense, understand it has to be that symbol representing reality. And it's drawn really out of the Old Testament. The olive trees and two lampstands, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 14. Joshua, the high priest, is Arubalel, the governor. Back then, their connection to the lampstands was that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, symbolized by the olive oil. In a similar way, these two witnesses that are referred to as two olive trees and two lampstands that will come in the future, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit as well. 
And while they're ministering, ministering God's truth, calling Israel to repentance, telling men of their sin and the impending return of Christ. And at this point, it's close. People a lot of times always say, well, we must be in the last days. Yes, we are, because the Bible says the last days began when Jesus came the first time. But you wonder how close you are. If you hear during this period of time, just know you are very close. Now, if anyone wants to harm in verse 5, fire flows out of their mouth and devours, devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Somebody comes up, we're going to kill those two witnesses, and they just open their mouths supernaturally, and they're incinerated. If I saw that one time, <laughs> I would be profoundly dissuaded at going about my business. Now here's the deal. We're talking about Elijah. One of the other witnesses here we think could be Moses. Both the witnesses are not named. Believers, scholars have believed that it possibly could be Moses and Elijah because of the similarity of the two witnesses in the future to the ministries of Moses and Elijah recorded in the Old Testament. Notice. These have power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power to... Who did that in the Old Testament? None other than Elijah the Tishbite. He, he told Ahab, there ain't going to be any rain. Except by my word. And guess what? There wasn't any rain. And notice verse 6, and it says... And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Who turned water to blood? Struck Egypt with plagues, ten of them. For three and one half years, these two witnesses are going to stand in Jerusalem and they are going to preach and they're going to perform supernatural miracles. Until God says, okay, your ministry's done. And they finish verse 7, their testimony. The beast, Antichrist, comes out of the abyss and makes war with them and overcomes them and kills them. Their dead bodies are lying in the street. But then the breath of life is going to enter them and God's going to say, come up here. The whole world's going to be watching the dead bodies of these three witnesses for three and a half days. And, oh, my God. They're, and they're going to celebrate. They're going to give gifts to people. It's going to be a party time during tribulation because these guys have tormented us. Now look at them dead. And God says, okay, guys, come up. Before they realize. You know, people used to wonder, how can that be? The whole world see this? And then television came. <laughs> television. I told you earlier, we can see something halfway around the world, a split second. And who knows how much better the technology will be then. Technology is a pace today because every time you turn around, there's something new. Can you imagine with man's technological genius what it could be like then? And everybody will see it. 
raised him up. An earthquake will come. 7,000 people will be killed. Now I'm going to tell you something. Verse 15. We need to get to the end of this. Verse 15 of Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel sounded the seventh trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Told you it's getting close. The chronology of the seventh trumpet reaches to Christ's return to earth. And when this trumpet sounds, it opens the seven bold judgments, which are rapidly rapidly descend upon the earth and then Jesus Christ comes Revelation 19.11 so Moses and Elijah if not them Elijah like Moses like witnesses for the coming of the Lord the future Elijah or Elijah like person will come get this brothers and sisters Jesus will return he will establish his kingdom and he will reign forever and ever throughout the remainder of human history on into eternity Christ will reign I don't know about you but this is my hope. Looking for him to come. Saved people can do that. Because we know we're going to be with him. Are you saved? Have you come into a relationship with the king of kings, the lord of lords? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins? Have you become his child? That's an imperative. What's more important than belonging to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead, is alive forevermore, and is going to come again. Let us bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for um, the Word of God. We thank you that you are the one who's in control of history. It's not cyclical, but linear. You've determined its days, its length, and its events. And ultimately, it will bring you glory when your son appears, and he judges, and be vindicated. Help us as your people to live in light of eternal issues increasingly. Help us not to be distracted by passing temporal things of this life. See them in their true light. See them in the light of eternity. Help us to yield ourselves to your word, for it is authoritative. You are God of truth. So what you say is truth. Sanctify us by your truth. Deepen our love for you.
Christ and the Spirit of God, the things of God and the people of God because of who we are and what you've done for us by your grace. I pray for those in this room who are without the Savior. This will be the day that they will come to him, receive salvation from him. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.